right, so today, since we've missed a couple weeks, I want to take a quick look back and go over this as we are in the middle. Al and I talked about this today. We are in the middle of this section called the Greater Deliverer, talking about Jesus. Um, and we ended last week by going through some of the promises that are shared to us in 51, 1 through 8, which is salvation for the remnant, which includes Gentiles as well, and the removal of the curse and the restoration of Eden. Now we're working our way to 53, which Al pointed out, which was now a month ago, that we're going to see a turning point in the Old Testament that you know, many had heard the good news of the day about what Isaiah shared, but you know, it's so radical, we realize how could they understand at that point when all they had. So we're going to finish 51 today. We're going to go through 51, 9 through 23, and we're going to look at the passages in the following sections. So 9 through 11, we're going to visit a friend that we have talked about so much through Isaiah, the arm of the Lord. And then 12 through 16, 12 through 16, we're going to talk about comfort from God. And then 17 through 23, we're going to talk about this cup of fury. So let's go through the passage. Isaiah 51, 9 through 23. Awake, awake, put on strength. O arm of the Lord, awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, and the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid out the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day, because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that, it waves, that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of the wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her, among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. 
Who will comfort you? Your sons have faded. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in the net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord and rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from you, taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put into the hand of I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over, that you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this section of the Bible to go through and how powerful it is. We thank you so much that we see your son in this and we see your great love from centuries ago, many centuries ago, how you cared so much for your people and you show us your plan that during times like these that we know we have your comfort. We thank you so much for it and just open our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word. In your precious name we pray, amen. You know, I was thinking about this as prepping through this. I was thinking about this during the week. You know, Isaiah was given an incredible gift by God as he was writing these scriptures that God put on his heart. Because it feels like many times as Isaiah was going over these prophecies, even though it was in the future, it felt like he was in there participating in them. Um, so in today's passage, it seems like Isaiah is in this group of people that are being surrounded by Babylon and getting ready to be taken. Um, but we know the exile to Babylon occurred well after the lifetime of Isaiah because he was killed by King Manasseh. And today we're going to see God's people, after centuries of warning, being warned to believe and to obey God, and obey God's chosen mouthpieces, like Isaiah, who's bringing them God's word, it didn't get real for them until Babylon showed up and began ushering people out. So in verses 9 through 11, we see the people of Jerusalem calling on God as if he had human tendencies all of a sudden and behaviors, because they hoped for salvation from Babylon and hope God had just taken a nap and was sleeping through this invasion. And once awoken, he would remember that he needed to do everything they said and come to their rescue. And they put, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. As in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of a sea a way for the redeemed to pass over, and for the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing? Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We see the added emphasis here of them asking God to awake because it's stated twice. And they want... God the Creator, 
their Savior from old to put on strength and help them. And they talk about this referring to the arm of the Lord. So tongue-in-cheek, I'm asking you, where have we seen any reference to the arm of the Lord? Besides, all throughout Isaiah, we see it used in many verses. So let's take a look at a few of them. Arm of the Lord, this is a picture of God in his full might and power. Creation is attributed to the arm of the Lord. In Psalm 89.11, Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens and the earth is God's. God has founded them. Exodus 15.16, the song of praise was for the defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. It says, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you purchased. And then Jeremiah 32.17, important because Babylon at this time was starting their siege of Jerusalem. And the promise they received from, Jeruz from Jeremiah was a picture of him buying a field because God commanded it. So think about it. You're about to be ushered out. Everything's going not your way. You're going to be taken out. And God's prophet is buying a field right before he's taken out. And it's a sign that, hey, one day you'll be back to buy in fields and vineyards in Jerusalem. It says in 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then Psalm 44, 23, when God's people do not get the response they want, they cry out thinking God is not paying attention to them. Where else have we seen this? Maybe the verse we're in. It says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is what is happening in verse 9. Can you see it? It's starting to get hard there, this exile. The enemy is making headway into the city, and God is not stopping their enemy. He had done this before, right? We saw this with Assyria. Um, all the prophecies that Isaiah has said are coming true. All the prophecies even after Isaiah and Jeremiah are coming true. And God's people had not listened and worked to understand what his word was, and they were not living in obedience. And so now they want God to awake as in the days of old and in the generations of long ago. In verse 9 is interesting the way Isaiah does this because we see it talking about God cutting Rahab in pieces and that he appeared, he had pierced the dragon. Isaiah was having some fun with them because Rahab and the dragon had come from Canaan and Babylonian mythology, and their existence and battles were mere fairy tales of divine prowess. Uh, 
Um, but also a lot of commentators will say that Rahab is a symbol of, of Egypt and showed that God had conquered the Pharaoh and him. But verse 10 in Isaiah moves from this mythology to God's verified facts and proven power. And he does this because the Hebrew word for sea, excuse my Hebrew pronunciation, is yam, Y-A-M. And in the Canaan Babylonian mythology, this same word yam is a foe that was killed by their, their false god, Baal. So Isaiah shows real history here over mythology by giving us God's defeat of the sea, or you could substitute the great depth, or use the word yam. So it shows two things there. It shows fact and this power over mythology. And this victory is history here because it happened. It happened before witnesses. And what happened was the sea was defeated and turned into dry land, which became the escape route for God's redeemed. So Isaiah took this crude mythology the people were saying of the day and gave it proper perspective and using it to provide comfort. The people fleeing Egypt were facing annihilation and they're reminded that God gave them a way of escape. We see his arm of strength here is a huge victory over Egypt and that's why they're using it as this, reminding him of this Red Sea victory. And it's saying, God, look what you've done for us again. And we, and we need this done now. And they desperately need some of that power now to remove the enemy from the land. Today, though, we have that need also to reach out to God. But we have another way that we're able to do it. And look at his promises for strength. Because when we have difficult times, we don't need to think about anything other than the cross of Jesus and his resurrection that, to remind us that Satan's attempt at world domination failed. It failed. And we only need to look at God's promises made in this book that tells us Jesus is the victor. He has the strength that we need, and they gave us the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Now, we should know that what these people learned is that God was not a genie in a lamp on a shelf that they could pick up and rub at any time they needed some power and live their own life and say, God, you know, you're up there, you're my God, but I'm living my life, and I'll only come to you when I need you. The rest of it's just private with us. That's not the way it works. He's... He has a promise, and it ultimately extends that we will see him again and provide for us in the second advent. Verse 11 is interesting because it is virtually identical to Isaiah 35.10. It says, and the ransom of the Lord, this is 35.10. It says, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness of joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Eleven shows us that the impassioned prayer of verse nine, with the previously historical victories in verse ten, are providing a way for the faith of God's redeemed. <laughs> 
And where do we see that? It's been promised before, right? So even Hebrews 11.22 tells us that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, mentioned this exodus redemption of the Israelites and gave directions of what they were to do with his bones. Joseph knew that one day God's people would leave Egypt. Jesus, before he departed, said that when he leaves, he will come back and bring us with him. And John 14:3 says, "And if I go and prepare I, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also." Now verses 12 through 16, the comfort from God. So we went through the people of God praying for him to show up and stop the exodus to Babylon. They reminded him of his great power in protecting them from Egypt, and they wanted that power now to happen again and take place. They get an answer back, though, that states, I, even I, signifying that God is as, as alert as he ever was, and he is answering them in the way they reached out. They use the term awake twice, and so he's using an emphasis in the I and even I reply. And it's important to note there who's being talked to in verses 12 and 16, because our English loses the meaning, the specific meaning of the you and the yours in this section. So let's take a look. The first you in the beginning of 12 and comforts you, this is a plural masculine. And what it means is it addresses everyone, everyone. The second one talking about who are you that you are afraid is specifically talking about Jerusalem herself. 13 and 14, the people referred to here are captives. And then in 15 and 16, we see that person, the servant, again. So as, again, as we're moving to what Al called, I'm just going to paraphrase it, flipping the Old Testament to a new way, and we will see who this servant is, and we were going to see what his assignment is. We will see comfort being offered to God's remnant Zion, and to the captives, and to this servant. And 12, the beginning of 12 says, I, even I. God is saying this again. He's matching the intense cry from his people in their verse 9, awake, awake. God is letting him know, hey, this is what you want, but, you know, this is, I am he, and I am all you need in the way of comfort. They may have wanted a savior to come in and stop this threat right now. That way this will go away and they can get back to their lives, their old way of living. But God is saying, hey, no matter what, no matter what happens to you, I am he that, and I am all you need. Comfort here is seen as both an action and an attribute. The comfort being offered God's people is here is not some special act that will occur for them to consider. Who, what it means is they will need to consider who they are 
and who their enemies are. That's the comfort God's offering. He's telling them who they are and what their enemies are. So being who you are as God's chosen, he's saying, why would you fear this people who are destined for the dirt and for the pit? God is saying, your enemies are mere mortals. They are frail, they will die, and they will keep on dying. That means the people that will come after them as the replacements that will suffer the same fate. In 12, God doesn't say anything about the fate of his people, only their enemies. But we get the idea that since we're his people, our fate will be the opposite of our enemies. Afraid here is a word that means gripped by fear. In 13 and 15, God is making a point that he is much more than a single act of saving in the past. And he wants them to go deeper, deeper than that Red Sea miracle. He wants to, re he, so he reminds them of who he really is and have they forgotten his real power and the extent of it. 13, the Lord your maker, creator of all, God is saying, I made you by election, given you redemption by grace, and I provide prov providential care to all my people. God is reminding them that he is not just the God of Jerusalem that would save them when their enemies come to the gate, but he is the creator God who rules absolutely everything. And his people, who should know these promises, are living in a defeated and distraught manner and they need to abandon that life, receive the redemption they got from sin, and have restoration with God. The wrath of the oppressor, if you think about it, in reality, what is it, God is saying, in comparison to me? So the wrath that man is offering you, what is it? Well, right when I saw that, it reminded me of what? Matthew 10, 28. And then today in my reading, I saw it again in Luke 12:4. Matthew 10:28 says, "And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." And a lot of times we forget that, right? We get oppressed or we get fear of what someone might think or do, and we forget who's in complete control and power and what his requirements are. So what we see is God telling us that his people may face threats and opposition, but the ultimate end will be freedom. The ultimate end will be freedom, not captivity, life and not death, and food and not hunger. This is God's promise. The result for people far from God is, is the opposite here. They will be flung into a life of captivity and experiencing all the horror that comes from it. 15 says, I am God. God is telling us in verse 15 that no matter how rough the seas may get, he can always make them rougher. And as we saw in the New Testament, even Jesus can call them. The takeaway is that God is in complete control of everything. 
how much stronger our lives would be if we even remind ourselves every morning of that, that no matter what happens, God is in complete control. 16 is awesome. Here is another peek at the servant, Jesus. Sorry if I ruined that for you. The picture here is the servant has come before God and receives these words of assurance. To God's people, this adds to our comfort, knowing that the servant will act on God's behalf for his people. We see two divine affirmations of put and covered, and three infinitives of purpose here, to establish, to lay, and to say. So we see God has words put into the servant, and the servant knows his task and is waiting, just waiting until God removes his hand and uncovers him and sends him on this way. So we have someone greater than a prophet that is coming, and he will establish the heavens. And that establish is the same metaphor, same word meaning as create. So we know Jesus did come, left, and put heaven together, right? And the ultimate comfort is knowing that Jesus has come and he's waiting, waiting to come that second time. And we will be with him forever in this created heaven. 1723, 17 through 23, the cup of fury. So in verses 1 through 8, we went through the promises of salvation. In 9 and 16, we went from prayer to, to prayer for help to receiving comfort in knowing our divine assurance to come. And now we're going to move through verses 17 through 23 this week to cover commands. And then Al's going to spend the time finishing up those commands that end in 52.12. Um, these commands, starting at verse 17, suggest the promises, and they suggest so. This is something you take knowing it, it's already happened, that God has restored Eden, and the curse has been lifted. And so these promises have been fulfilled, and all of God's people have to do is enter into them. So the way is open for us to awake and see what God has done. 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of God the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So what we see here is God is using Isaiah to command his people to enter into a salvation that is ready for them. He's assuring them that through the work of the servant, his wrath, is a thing of the past. This is very impressive when you stop and think about it because what we're getting here is a New Testament message in Isaiah. We can get so hardened in hearing it in our American lifestyle, this New Testament, this gospel message. But when times get tough, like right now in the world, when real oppressors are affecting people, we can know that God of creation is in control 
and will remain in control. 17 starts out by God telling his people to rouse yourselves. Guess what? You have been the ones sleeping. Here, God has been telling them big things. These big things gave them a chance to prove faithful and to obey, but they proved that they were the ones sleeping. They have slept through these times. This cup of wrath that's mentioned here can be said to be all of his punishments blended in a cup like a morning smoothie and specifically given to them for their consumption. And this is what happens when you're told you're under his wrath. Psalm 11:6 says, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall their portion be of this cup, the cup of wrath. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And even in Ezekiel 23, God is talking about these twins, and he's using them to, dis- to talk about Samaria and Jerusalem. And he says to Jerusalem, you're going to get Samaria's cup next, and it's a cup of wrath, and it's deep, and it's large. So this cup of staggering, God's wrath, it could even be called the cup of trembling, and it's a double expression here, meaning staggering and trembling. And it's not, this is important to capture, it is not the picture of a staggering walk from an impairment, from from maybe like too much alcohol. What it is, It's the staggering of a person that realizes, that realizes they are hopeless and they are in the final stages of receiving God's wrath and there's no way out from it. It's permanent. It's kind of like we talked about the second advent and the soldiers, their faces shining red. It's when they came to a complete realization they're on the wrong side and they're about to be destroyed forever. It's the same type of staggering here. So 18 through 20 gives us three pictures of the results of God's wrath. Jerusalem, living by faith, should have been the world's best armed city, right? God is your your God and you have his living army. God's living army is in control. We see protection after protection all through history, right? When God did all the heavy lifting and the people of Jerusalem had to do nothing. And he performed complete victories so that no man could boast about it. But in 18, God continues to emphasize the calamity that's going to befall on them. And he does it by using duplication of terms here, what we see. We see sons twice, and then we see born, take by the hand, and brought up. 
So Jerusalem was expecting to be provided for by her sons in the way of armies and protection, wisdom and strength, and to be led by them. But there is no human resources that can protect or deter God's wrath. 19, we see a continuation of the duplication of terms to bring home a point. It's to bring home a point. Here we have devastation and famine and destruction and sword. Destruction and sword gives us a picture of total disaster touching everything, all land and all property. Devastation and famine gives us a picture of total destruction against the people. This is a snapshot of divine wrath in action. It shows us that no human can resist it. No one will be left to be provided comfort. You can't say, let this cup pass from me. It's, it ain't happening. It is saying that God is in complete control. The created cannot overpower him, and they are under his wrath. No one and nothing will be left. This third picture we get of God's wrath, it's a picture of the young men who should be armed and protecting the city, but instead they're down. They are lying, no doubt dead from the wrath, and they're, it says they're lying in the head of every street like they were positioned there to provide protection, but instead they're down. And is, is, gives us the appearance of an animal caught in a net who has given up the struggle. Because when you see that, when you see an animal caught in a trap, they're not calm, right? They're not. They're not brave. They're not waiting in humility to be released. They have a great fear and they thrash about until they lose all the strength they have and give in to their circumstances. So here Jerusalem has lost her strength her sons, they have fallen, and there is no hope for the future. And so while 18 and 20 gave us three pictures of God's wrath, now we move to these next three verses to show us the end and praise God the removal of wrath. 21 starts off with the word therefore, and all those Therefore, and all those who encompass, it therefore is going to take care of, we're going to see it's going to deal with 18's comfortlessness, 19 hopelessness, and 20 under his wrath. We need to hear this. It says, you who are afflicted, which can be said, you who are humble or downtrodden by this divine wrath. Drunk but not with wine means that we are still talking about the cup and the deliberate measuring out of the wrath that goes into it. 22 gives the people what they need to hear and we now find out what therefore means. This is all pretty heavy stuff in a few words, folks. There's a double use of the word God we see in Isaiah is using it to emphasize respect in all situations of God's leadership. We see a reference here. Also, it's, it takes us to 1 Kings 
117. So we see that respect in all situations afforded leadership, whether it's God or people directly under. So we see in 1 Kings 117, Bathsheba addresses her husband David the king, and she's reminding him with full respect that, hey, who destined, you know, reminding him who he destined to replace him on the throne. It was Solomon. And this after his other sons were trying to take over. So we see that pretty heavy, powerful word that says respect in all situations. And it gives us a picture of how people act when a great forgiveness takes place and they are so moved to operate within obedience. So God is revealing by his desire to let us know that he is the God who saves his people and will judge his enemies. This is the God who has commanded, committed himself to his people and their welfare. This is the God of absolute justice who will defend his people. The term, behold, I've taken, the staggering and trembling caused by the drink in 17 is now gone from the hand that held it. Only God can take this away. And for the one holding it, that is no longer holding it, it is a huge miracle. So God gave the cup to all, but through his election, he removed the cup from some. So blessed be the name of the Lord for removing this cup from us. And it's important that we understand what this cup represented and how big a deal it was that it was removed for his people. And once the cup was removed, it can never come back into our hands. The wrath of this sin-hating God will never fall on his people. This is the therefore in 21, that an incredible, majestic God chose us for reward, and there was nothing that we could do to earn the reward. And left to our own devices, we would continue to drink from that cup. 23 says, now the cup is in the hand of God's tormentors, and his wrath will come down on them. These are the ones we see in verse 23 that have mistreated God's brutal ways, like having their prisoners serve as patches for roads. It says, you have made your back like the ground. This is a reference to how foreign rulers and armies thought so highly of their prisoners that there, if there was a way in the road that was, that was down and there was no quick pitch, no quick patch kits to fix the hole in the road, so instead of taking a long time to fix the road and thus being vulnerable, they would put their prisoners into these holes and serve as a patch kit so it allowed their supply lines to keep moving quickly. It shows you how much they thought of them. So the judgment, the coming of all these tormentors will be performed by the greater deliverer, Jesus. God has given him this assignment and uncovered him for the first advent, and now we await the second advent. 
so like I said, it's amazing to me to go through this and see the election and forgiveness in Isaiah so clearly here. Nothing that we could have done would have removed that cup for our hand except that Jesus did all the work. And so as a believer, I'm telling you, never ever forget the power that's in that cup of wrath and for, never ever forget that it passed by you. Because it's so horrific. If you think about what we know in the New Testament, this cup is so horrific that even Jesus himself, who knew his assignment, knew he would take this on for us, asked if at all possible could this cup be taken away from him. Luke 22, 42 through 44, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Let that sink in for a moment, either right now or later. This servant who had the assignment is telling us in his action, and he knows it, we don't, he knows it, how powerful this cup of wrath and affliction is. And he took it for us. So we will never, ever know. Maybe in heaven we'll get an idea when we know more, but we will never on this side of it know. And God loved Jesus so much that when he confirmed his assignment to him, he sent an angel to come minister to Jesus. Folks, that is so much love. And we get to share in it as his an elect. Isaiah 12, 1 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just love you so much. We, well, while on this side, we will never understand what the immense power the immense love you had for us. We can only imagine. And you show us clear in your word. You show us clear in your word that you understood this wrath that you took for us. Because you wanted to know if there was a plan B. And when confirmed there wasn't, you had so much love and respect and obedience for your father that you did his will and didn't do ours. Because we would be right behind you with our hands saying, we're with Jesus. We're with Jesus 100%. There's got to be another way. We don't want to face this wrath. And it's not ours to ever know. And we thank you so much for that. So help us always, Father, to remember that we are called not to be like the people of Jerusalem, that lived in their own ways, their own manner of lifestyle, and just knew you from a distance. 
but we are called to know you fully, to obey you fully, and to understand what it means on this side of earth to accept the gift you gave us, for you didn't have to. It was by your election only. May we never lose sight of that. And as the song, nothing else said, Father, just help us know that all we want to do is spend the rest of our lives getting to know you better, for you're the promise of eternity. It's not anything else. In your precious name we pray. Amen.